Welcome, Element, to week two of the book of Job. Now, I want to explain a couple things as we are going through this because we've asked all of you to get these booklets. On the booklets, you're going to have a journaling page. Now, I know for a lot of people, journaling is not the funnest thing in the world to do, and you might be daunted by pages like this. On those pages, you can simply answer the questions on the different day's activities. Uh, you could doodle. Uh, you could take sermon notes in them. The pages are there to help you, not to hinder you. And as we walk through this journey together, we want all the things that we do to be things that draw us back together again. And that's why everything in the book is there. If you miss a few days and you're like, oh my goodness, I got to catch up, just start on the day that you are. And after you that, do that, you want to go back, sure, go back and catch up on those other things. But really just start where you are, because the whole point is to get us into a rhythm together where all of element is moving forward together as we go through this book of Job. Today also is the day we're asking all of you to think about what you are going to give up for the next six weeks of our Lenten journey. Uh, some people have said a lot of different things. You know, you know, as I said, mine's sugar and all, but other people I've talked to have said different things. Some people have said they're going to give up playing games on their phone. Uh, one friend of mine said that they are going to start reading their Bible more, so they're going to give up some time in other areas to make sure they have time to actually read the scriptures. And one of the things I pointed out to her is I said, that's great. When you do have a plan though. Don't just be like, I'm going to read the Bible. You don't know where to start. Before we get to Sunday, spend some time praying. And then when you get to that day to give something up and take up Bible reading, have a plan of what you want to read through. She was also talking about her daughter who was talking and praying about what to give up. And her daughter said, I'm going to do this because it's easy. And she said, we don't do it just because it's easy. We want to do it so it reminds us who God is as we walk through this season together. So I just want to throw that out there. Don't let anything we go through in these weeks be daunting at all. We want it all just to be something that draws us closer together in rhythm with one another. So element kind of comes together on the same page. Don't forget in the middle of the message, I'm going to put up a slide. It's going to have a question on it. You can hit pause during that question, uh, get some coffee, take care of your kids, but hopefully answer that question before we move on to the rest of the message. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on more and then events in Uversion. If you're in our local area, we'll come up by GPS in your smart device. If not, just type in 93455, but all you are going to get is the verses and the announcements. Everything else is actually found in our booklets. So if you didn't get a booklet yet, we actually ran out last week. We printed some more, so we'll have some more this week. But you can also get a PDF version, a downloadable to look at. So you'll know all the little things that we are going through this week through this message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. If you are so inclined, you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. And this is Job chapter 2, verse 9. And it says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. She's very encouraging. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that today that you would take us and remind us of your goodness, even as we look through certain things that happen in Job's life, things that we, quite frankly, don't understand and wouldn't know how to respond to in our own lives. We ask that you would take us and teach us to be a people who trust you above all things, that our hearts and lives be completely surrendered to who you are, and that we would understand better and better as we walk through these days and weeks of the book of Job, that we would understand your goodness and how you have drawn us to yourself. So teach us to love you as we walk through this. Amen. 
Amen. Okay, so as I said, we are in the book of Job. This is week two. Uh, we are going to do eight weeks throughout this. We are calling it our Lent journey. Now, I know a lot of people have not been through anything like Lent before because you haven't come from a more uh, traditional tradition. Uh, so what Lent is, is it's a journey that's meant to remind us of who God is and what he is doing in the world. It's meant to be a preparation that leads us up to the celebration of Easter. So we spend a few weeks looking at what God has done in the world and in our lives before we celebrate, because we have to know what we're celebrating in order to learn how to celebrate uh, correctly. So we take this time of reflection, of reflection. And we're supposed to understand that we live in a world that has fallen and broken because of our own decisions. But God has stepped into this world to rescue and save us and draw us back to himself. We must understand that God has always been good, no matter what we have gone through. That even in the sin of us running away from him, God is determined to do something about it to bring us back to himself. So again, we are spending seven weeks in preparation for the eighth week of celebration. And as I said, this week we are asking you to give something up starting today for the next six weeks in order for the week of celebration to pick that thing back up again. Uh, Open your Bibles to Job chapter 1. That's where we're going to start. You may think spending eight weeks in this Old Testament book called Job is a really long time, but Job is actually 42 chapters. And normally for element in a book that's 42 chapters, that'd be like a year and a half for us. So you're welcome. We've shortened it just a little bit. The first two chapters, what they really do is they're going to show us Job's calamity and set up the rest of the book. All the conversations that take place and everything that goes on, it's setting that up. And the majority of the book is how Job is going to deal with these calamities, which also leads to how we will deal with calamities in our own lives. All the pain and suffering that we don't really understand. Because all these things ultimately are to lead us to a place where we reflect upon the goodness of God, that he loves us, that God restores us, that God will use all things that come into our lives in ways that glorify him and bring about our good. But in the midst of suffering, it's hard to see or acknowledge what God is doing. I mean, as a side note, John Calvin went through the book of Job and he preached 159 sermons, 159 you get eight. Again, you're welcome. It might just be because I'm only like 115 as smart as that guy was. Anyway, but last week we saw Job, he lost his children, uh, he lost his home, his livelihood, his business, all of that. What is Job's response to all of this? Job chapter 1, verse 21, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's how he responds. Now, as I was going through some stuff, this reminded me of a letter I read by a couple who had a son named Matt who died of cancer when he was eight years old. Uh, Scott Scruggs is a guy I listened to from time to time, and they went to the church he was pastoring. And this is just some excerpts of the letter that they wrote to the church after their son died. And I think it's very important for us to hear in terms of the book of Job. Uh, this is what they wrote. Five months ago, Matt, our eight-year-old son, died. How then can we stand here and affirm that God is good? This may seem strange, but we have never experienced God so intimately and so powerfully as when we are in the midst of our suffering. Don't get me wrong. Matt's cancer and his death brought us profound pain. I turned to scripture to find comfort, but as hard as I looked, I could not find any verse that promised that God would take away sickness and death. What I did find, however, were many promises of how he would be with us and provide for us. Well, God kept that promise. 
Though our pain did not go away, the burden was eased by an abundance of blessings. And God worked within Matt to help him face death without fear and live out his life with complete joy. Those final hours were some of the holiest moments we've ever experienced. Let me read that to you again. Those final hours were some of the holiest moments we've ever experienced. They go on and say, there is joy amidst our tears. We could all feel God's presence, and that room felt like hollowed ground. Our lives will never be the same, but out of the depths of our misery, God parted the heavens and reached down. He did not take death away, but he took away its sting, and in its place he made us feel his faithful and abundant love, and for that we rejoice. Can you imagine, in the midst of something like that, using a word like rejoice? I mean, Job uses the word, the Lord gave, the Lord taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's that same idea, that blessing, that, that rejoicing. And the rejoicing for Job and for these people wasn't because they had all the answers to their questions. For Job, it was that he understood that God was sovereign and that God oversaw his life. And for these people who lost their son, Matt, it's that they realized that God came down in the person of Jesus and God walked through this tragedy with them. Because God has been bringing good out of painful tragedies ever since we first ran away from him. When the Job chapter 2 starts, which you can flip to at this point, I'm sure Job probably feels like the worst part has got to be over right now. But chapter 2 starts just like chapter 1. All the sons of God present themselves before God, and here comes the accuser into the midst. Job chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast to his integrity. Now, in the scriptures right right there that holds fast as integrity we don't actually know if that's a positive or a negative because the word integrity means innocence and you will see this come up again over and over in the book that job is holding on to this thing that he considers his innocence and eventually he'll stop holding on to his innocence and begin to hold on to who god is himself but anyway god says he still holds on fast to his integrity although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason then satan answered the lord and said skin for skin all that a man has he will give for his life but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face and the lord said to satan behold he is in your hand only spare his life Now, I told you last week that a lot of people read this and they're horrified because it looks like God and Satan, the accuser, are playing a chess match and Job is a pawn just ready to get taken out. As a matter of fact, we have some questions about this on our Instagram this week. A couple of people who I'm friends with that I talked to this week asked the same question. And what you need to understand in this is this is an ancient book, at least probably 3,500 years old, and it's written to an ancient civilization. And when we look at the scriptures, we have to understand that the scriptures are written for us, but they are not written directly to us. We can read and understand lots of things by what the scriptures teach, but they are written to a specific culture in a specific place. This culture that this was most likely written to saw lots of gods. And so the first thing that you see is all the heavens, all the gods that they can think of. Everyone bows down to one God because there is only one God. They all present themselves. And this God, he is not capricious. He does not uh, bring suffering into Job's life himself. It's that these other things are doing it. And what it's meant to show is that God is over and above everything. For these people, they would not think anything wrong that the gods were taking out Job's life in this way. They'd be astounded, though, that God cared and that God was involved and that God noticed someone like Job and put a hedge around him of certain things that this enemy could do and certain things that he couldn't do. And that's what we're meant to see. Now, 
Now, if Job was written directly to us today, it would probably focus on different things, but it's written here. So we have to understand why it was written in those places. Again, God will not, in the book, actively generate Job's suffering. This is unheard of for the people in that day. And so the scriptures are there to teach us that when God made the world, God made the world good. It wasn't a place of disease and disaster, and yet disease and disaster and death are in the world. Why? Well, the scriptures teach that those are brought about by us. When we rebelled against God, we brought sin into the world. When God created the world, he created it to function in this thing called shalom. Shalom, we translate roughly as peace, but it's so much more than just peace. Shalom is everything in the right place, in the right timing, in the right way, in the right relationship, that everything is all right with us and God is God's favor and blessing. And the scriptures clearly teach that this disruption of shalom is brought about by us. When God created the world and made mankind as image bearers and placed him in the world to steward it and watch over it, we could have done that in the way of shalom or we could run our own way. And what happened almost immediately is mankind ran their own way. And this does not merely result in a moment of guilt and inner shame for us. It begins the comprehensive and catastrophic destruction and collapse of shalom all in the universe, which means every last part of God's creation has now been touched by what we've done, the corruption of our own sin. In Romans 8, 19, we are told the creation waits with eager longing for the, sons of, for the revealing of the sons of God. Even creation is waiting for the full redemption that comes in Christ that was promised. And when we trust ourselves more than we trust God, suffering starts to become the natural outplay of that into our world. But what the book of Job is also trying to show us is that just because suffering is a consequence for sin, it does not always mean that it is a direct punishment for sin. And that's important because Job's friends don't realize that, and Job's wife doesn't realize that, and a lot of people in the culture this is written to don't realize that, that there is suffering in the world that comes because of a consequence of our sin, but it is not always a punishment for it. God and Satan, they are not at war, these two hugely powerful forces, and who's going to win? Nothing can stand up to God. This is what the book of Job is trying to show us. And this is why I wanted you to understand that the word for Satan is really the word accuser. He is accusing, accusing the brethren before God. And what you're supposed to notice in this is that this is an assault on God's glory in Job's heart. God's value and God's glory is being taken under assault on Job's heart. This is why Satan says in verse 11, Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Take away his crutch of his health that he thinks he can do life on his own, and he won't fall down and worship of you. He will curse you to your face. And we must understand that God does not need anyone to prove anything to him. God knows Job's heart. It's why God in the council says, hey, look at Job. Look at my servant. God is able to say, I know exactly what he is going to do. But this is not just about Job. This is about all the people that will hear the story. And even us, millennia later, reading it, that God loves to put his glory on display. John Piper says that God loves to put his glory on display for the angels and for the devils and for the world by having his people show where their heart really is, namely in God rather than in health and things. Now, when John Piper talks about this, he likes to point to the book of John where Jesus' buddy Lazarus is sick and ready to die. 
Everybody comes to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, your, your buddy Lazarus is, is going to die. You're really good at healing people. You should go take care of that. And Jesus waits. He doesn't go. And people say, well, why are you waiting? Jesus in John eleven four 4 says, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus intentionally waits. And then when Lazarus does die, Jesus is like, okay, let's go. And he shows up. It was like, why did you wait? You could have come. You could have healed this guy. You could have done something. And Jesus tells these people that he waited, he says, so that you may believe. Because God is going to do a work that none of them saw coming. One version says, because of your faith. John Piper writes this. He, Jesus, would rather have him, Lazarus, dead if it would produce more faith than keep him alive if it would produce less faith. And this is the understanding that God is the God of the living. Yes, Job's children may have died, but Job knows God can still hold those kids in his hands. And Jesus knows that if Lazarus dies and it brings about more faith with his death, well, God still holds Lazarus in his hand. Ultimately, everything we go through is for God's eventual glory and our eventual good. And God will bring good out of every single tragedy, whether we see it or not. And one of the things we want these weeks throughout this Lent journey to do is help us refocus our lives on what really matters because we get so distracted so many times on all these things that don't really matter. We tend to be a people who place great value on what other people think about us, what other people do for us. And I know there's some people who say, oh, I don't care what other people think about me. Well, they say that because they've probably been hurt at some point and they're just saying that to protect themselves. They're doing it because they really cared what people thought uh, about them. It just goes to show. Like this, uh, if if you're married and someone forgets an anniversary at, at one point, one person actually gets hurt because of that. They feel devalued. Now, if you're a guy and you forget once, you'll probably never forget again. I have three reminders in my phone every year about my anniversary, but we all have these little things in our lives. I'll give you an example. Uh, mine is cheese. Mine, I know you think, what in the world? What, what's this thing about cheese? Well, when my wife and I were first married, really about 10 to 15 years into our marriage as well, uh, I found this one type of cheese I really liked. And when we ran out of cheese, she would say, I'm going to the store. What do you want? I said, I want some cheese. Well, what kind? And I'd say, what kind? She'd go to the grocery store and she would pick up the wrong kind of cheese. Every single time she'd get there. And if I would go, I'd buy the right kind of cheese. Now, here's the cheese. Here, this, this is the kind I like. Okay, she'd go to the store again. She wouldn't pick up, up the cheese. And I, I don't know if you know this, but if you don't get the right kind of cheese that you like, there, there's all kinds of things that are wrong. It doesn't cut right. That's not a joke. Um, it doesn't smell right. It doesn't taste right. You know, and every time she'd get the wrong cheese. At first, it was funny. And then I started to take it just a little bit more personal, like she didn't care enough about me to, to pick up my cheese. And I'm sure you might have a thousand examples for things in your life, but we are a people who like people to care about us the way we want to be cared for. And if we're not careful, we can become very selfish in that. It ends up being very selfish. And what the book of Job is showing us is that if we can't step back and look at the larger picture of what God is doing in the world and in our lives, we're going to take every hurt in our life and every injustice in our life and every pain in our life and every suffering moment in our life as an excuse to think that God doesn't care when God actually does care. We won't respond like Job if we don't understand God's sovereignty. We will get angrier and angrier and angrier because our priorities are, if God loves me, well, and he would do this. And this is whatever we've determined it needs to be. God values hearts and lives that are so enamored with him and who he is that his grace comes through no matter what we walk through. And that sometimes can be a very scary theology, but it can set us up for losing things to help us to understand what we truly believe. 
And I think that we many times don't know what we believe until hard times begin to come. But God is in the process of growing us because he loves us. And God wants us to see what is paramount in our own heart. And when you look at Job, you see in the end that it wasn't Job's livelihood and his cattle or his homes or his job. And, what, and it wasn't even in the end his, his children. It was God himself. But that's really a good question for us, though. And that's the question I'm going to put up for you today on the live stream as a slide, is what is more precious to you in your life than God? If it is cheese, well, you're always going to be offended when your spouse goes and buys the wrong kind of cheese. If it's your health, well, what happens if you get sick? If it's your children, and, and God forbid, you know, if it's your children and something happens to them, well, what, what happens at that point? That's the question. What is more precious to us in our life than God himself? And we must be honest about what that is. We can't just say, oh, it's God himself, because almost every single one of us have something in our lives that ends up being more precious to us than God himself. Now, this tends to be a problem with a lot of Christianity as it's understood in America today. Uh, We tend today to not lean usually so much on Jesus himself, but on the blessings that he brings. We focus a lot on the blessings. Like we want to think about Jesus, but we really start to think about the things that he gives us. Uh, This is one of the reasons we're doing this Lent journey, because it's going to help us get our eyes off ourselves and onto who he is. Many times we want what God gives, and we almost become addicted to that rather than the relationship we should have with God. Like we will even think, thank God at meals, which I hope we do. It's one of the easiest things to pray about. God, thank you for this food and for blessing me so much with it. But sometimes it's the food we love and not necessarily God himself. One writer says it like this. See if this makes more sense. We think mainly in terms of gratitude when we ought to be thinking mainly in terms of adoration, affection and delight and trust and the preciousness of his personal communion, which is what we will have the minute we die and lose everything else. And if that isn't more precious to us than what we lose, what have we got in our Christianity? And that's so true. We so often hang on to all of these things rather than adoration for who Christ is in himself. I mean, I want all of us in the end to be a people like Job ended up at the end of the book. So Job has now lost his stuff and his children, and now the accuser is going to go and afflict Job's skin with boils. So if in Job chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it says this, So Satan went out for the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he, that's Job, took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Now these are not like chicken pox or bad acne. These are boils that need to be lanced and they're disgusting. I did not look for any pictures to show you. You're welcome. I'm just going to try and explain it a bit. Uh, These are boils that would probably run with pus and the only thing that Job can do that he can think of is take these shards of pottery and to scrape them to get the pus out of them. Uh, This is a time where not a lot of people knew a lot about hygiene and as far as they know if I push the pus out it's really got to help. Kind of like today if people get a pimple of some sort the first thing they do is, is want to squeeze it, when actually that can inflame the follicle, that could push it debris deeper in, it could cause scarring. I know it's going to stop, not stop any of us from doing it, but that's what can actually happen. And I know you probably never thought that you're going to talk about popping pimples in church. Go element. Anyway, uh, for Job, this is an infection waiting to happen, and it's why it lasts so long and why it's so painful. As a matter of fact, in Job chapter 7, verse 5, it tells you that worms started to grow in these boils. 
And this is probably because he's sitting in an unclean environment, uh, maybe even rubbing some mud in the wounds, thinking that that helps, because you've probably seen movies or things like that where people spit in mud and they rub it and they put it in their wounds. Oh, this will heal you. Guys, look, I know a couple doctors. I'm not one, but I know a couple. And you should clean out your wounds. Don't rub dirt in them. It doesn't help. And what eventually happens to Job is these worms start to grow in them. And Job is covered in these things from from his head to his hair, to his face, to his neck, to his chest, to his back, to his buttocks, to his legs, to his feet. And if you saw it, you would probably gag. And this is not the romanticized suffering that so many authors want to write about. This is real and it's nasty and it's full of pus. But what you have to understand in this story, it is the worth of God in Job's heart that is at stake. Is God more valuable or is health more valued? This is now the issue in Job's life. The first thing you see when this happens is that Job's wife, she just caves. Uh, She is done. Job chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? And again, that's the word that God used in the beginning. Are you holding fast to your innocence? Curse God and die. There's a lot of people that come down on Job's wife here. I do as well. I like to make fun of her and say, yeah, let's put her on the self-help circuit because she's so positive. But uh, here are some artist representations of what Job's wife uh, looked like in their mind. None of the pictures you see are very flattering at all. As a matter of fact, I had a hard time finding some pictures because when I typed in Job's wife, it looks like Job's wife, and I kept getting pictures of Steve Jobs' wife. Uh, But none of the pictures of her are very flattering at all. But you have to understand some things about Job's wife. Job's wife has seen all of her husband's wealth evaporate. She is also grieving over the loss of 10 of her children. And now her husband gets a disease that is so horrid she can't touch him without gagging and having to wash her hands. He probably looks like he's been rolled in melted marshmallow goo or something like that. And then how does Job respond to her? Job chapter 2, verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now it's interesting here that it says with his lips, because there's other things going on, but we'll start dealing with that next week. She says, Curse God and die. I think this is the point where the accuser is like, Yes, got her. And if she's over the edge, he's not far behind. There are actually two ways to interpret what Job says to his wife here about this foolishness. One is that he's being very harsh for not understanding him, you know, in all of his pain and stuff. And so he says, you're a dummy. How come you can't understand this? But I don't think that's who Job is is from the text, from the things that you read about him and how he responds. And when Job says, you speak as one of the foolish women, what he could really mean is, I know you're not one of them. This is out of character for you. And it could be tender instead of harsh. And I would like to give Job and her the benefit of the doubt here. She responds like a lot of us would, though. This is too hard. There's too much going on. God must not care. And for a lot of us, our response when pain doesn't leave quickly and we go through something for a really long time, like, say, I don't know, COVID, you know, we want to run and hide. And if that doesn't help, we say, well, God, you failed. So often, we would almost rather die than learn what God wants to teach us through hard situations. But we also understand when you read the book of Job, when you get to the end, that God is also patient. And God is kind and God is steadfast and loving to move us to a place where we learn as we trust him. And truthfully, that doesn't happen for everyone. Some people get so caught up in their pain that they cannot see past it and they become victims and they refuse to listen and learn. But I think God is still patient as he draws and coaxes us back to himself throughout our lifetime. 
Now, the text never says it. By the end of the book, I think Job and hopefully Mrs. Job got it all together and figured it out, and they trusted God just a little bit more. Could be wishful thinking on my part. But you also have to understand in this that the accuser, Satan, he doesn't know what we're thinking. He doesn't know the future. And he doesn't know how Job is going to respond to all this, especially when Mrs. Job jumps off the ledge. And what does Job say? Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. And all of a sudden, the accuser now sees, uh, oh my goodness, God is more important to Job in his life than anything else. And there's a lot of writers that like to point out here that after this point, when this statement is made, you never see the accuser once again mentioned in the book. He never comes back because all the things he tried to do are now thwarted because someone loves God more than he could ever imagine. Job will even say this in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though God showed up and slew Job on the spot because God is the God of the living, Job says, my hope is still going to be in him no matter what. Now, a week and a half ago, I was texting with Steve Pruitt, and he mentioned that as we went through that uh, message I did about walking through the desert, he goes, you gave four really easy points at the end to hold on to, and that was great. So what I want to do today to wrap up Job 1 and 2 is to give you three truths we see from that, and then three practical applications from that. I think I might have stolen these from John Piper, because I was reading a lot of Piper at this point. And I just want to run through those, because I think they're really good for us. And the first truth is this, our enemy will try to belittle God by destroying our joy. Now, it could be in different ways. Uh, he could do it by destroying, trying to destroy our trust or our satisfaction or delight in God. But we have an enemy that is out there that is trying to make God look worthless to us so that we would curse God. Now, there's two ways this happens. It can happen through pleasure and through pain. Like pain can come in and is used to make us feel that God is powerless or hostile towards us or he doesn't care. But pleasure can also kind of do the same things. We all want pleasure, but pleasure can make us start to feel like we don't need God at all, that God's unnecessary. I got all the pleasures I want. Got a house, got a car, got a home, got a vacation home, all the things Job had. I got insurance, I got a spouse, I got kids, I got a boyfriend, girlfriend. I'm secure. What do I need God for? See, the enemy's desire is for pleasure and pain both to make us curse God. But God's intent for pleasure is to make us have gratitude towards him. And God's intent for pain is to trust him in spite of it so that he shines as more valuable than anything else in our life. Our enemy will try to belittle God by destroying our joy. The second truth is that God works then for our joy in him. John Piper writes this, God aims to magnify his worth in the lives of his people who treasure him above everything else. This is the reason you were created. One of the reasons God even created the universe itself is so that his glory could be displayed. And it could also be displayed in the lives of the creatures that he has made who treasure him above everything else. Now, yes, we all love to do this in places of prosperity when it's easier and things are good. But we can see it even more clearly in our lives when we go through something that is hard. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, 3 through 5, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Third truth is this, that what you see time and time and again is that God himself limits the accuser's power in our life. Job 1.12, Job 2.6, God limits what can happen to us. It's that the enemy cannot make a move apart from God's sovereignty. 
Now, this means that everything that comes into our lives are really secondary causes of pain in, in the world. God is primary. Everything else ends up being secondary. And God will take all of those things and make us grow. Job one twenty nine. Job says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He sees God as primary. Job does not teach that God and Satan are vying for power and we don't know who is going to win. Job teaches the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Chapter 2, Job says, Shall we receive good at the hands of the Lord and shall we not receive boils? Again, even though it's crystal clear to us reading it that it was the accuser and the enemy who inflicted Job with boils, but Job starts that with, Shall we not receive good at the hand of the Lord? Shall we not look at all the good things he's already given us? and not just focus on all the bad things that are happening now. Uh, One pastor says when people ask him, uh, how's he doing? He says, better than I deserve, because we always are. And when hard times come, we should not just look and remember and focus on the bad times. We should look and remember the good times as well. All the good that God has already brought us in our life. Our life is a gift, and when God decides to take it, God is doing us no wrong. So what are the applications of this? Well, first off is this. We must believe that God is God even when we suffer. And this goes back to two weeks ago in the whole desert experience. In the desert, we learn to love God and trust him just because he is God. We don't always have to have all of the answers. We must come to the place where we trust the truth of God over everything else. Second application of this, we must be okay then with weeping and mourning when suffering does come. In no way does the book of Job, and in no way is anything I am saying, meaning that you you can't cry out in anguish and pain. Job tore his clothes, he shaved his head, all these different things to show his anguish. That's okay. And as a matter of fact, I think it's one of the reasons that God put our tear ducts right in front of our face in our eyeballs, because you can't hide your pain. And many times, our tears speak more volumes than our words ever could. It is through our weeping that sometimes we touch one another deeply. And if you want to go all Job and cover yourself in ashes and tear your clothes and pull your hair out, you can do that. And sometimes we we come alongside one another and do some of these things. Like a few years ago, most of you know who Lexi Brown is. And Lexi Brown got cancer. And she started to fight this whole campaign. Fight like a girl. And and people would come along and they did this bald for Lexi. There's this fundraiser. And people would shave their heads in solidarity with Lexi as she went through her, her cancer. In Romans 12, 15, Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Paul says those things go hand in hand, and we can do that with one another. And in the midst of maybe losing someone you love, you can weep for the loss, but still have joy for the time that you spent together. Uh, Maybe if you do end up with boils all over your skin like Job, Job is saying, I can still remember all the years that I had without the boils, and it was amazing. Maybe you get cancer, and it's this devastating diagnosis, but you look back at all the years you lived without the cancer. You know, I love cookies. Maybe one day I'll eat so many cookies I get like the diabetes or something, and I can still look back at all the years I got to eat the cookies before I got the diabetes. There is joy that can still come in that as we think about what God has done, even in the midst of our trials. And the third one is this. We trust and treasure God's goodness. We trust and treasure God's goodness. Psalm 63.3 says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. We trust that God is good, no matter what is coming into our lives at a given time, because God is sovereign, and He is good over our lives, and He cares about us, and He sees what is going on where we are. God becomes our treasure and our joy. 
John Piper writes this, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. And if the steadfast love of the Lord experientially now in this world and fully in the age to come is better than life, then we don't lose it when we lose life. And we don't lose it when we lose everything that life can give. This is why Job can say in Job 3.15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Because that is the hope, that God is the God of the living and God holds us in in his hands and God is good. And this is one of the reasons why today is the day we're asking you to determine something you're going to give up for the next six weeks. And that thing that we give up, it's it's not like self-penance or anything like that. It's meant to be something that every time you think about that or crave that, you would think about who God is himself and what he has done. That there are so many ways in our world that people view who God is, but we want to see him the right way, the way that he has revealed himself. So we want to take this time that we normally give to other things, And we want to put that in remembering who God is and what he has done. And this is one of the reasons every week at Element, we try and take you to a place where we speak about this thing called communion. Jesus says, whenever you gather, even if it's a virtual gathering, we gather and remember him by remembering what he did through this thing called communion. That's where you take a cracker or a piece of bread and you dip it in wine or grape juice or drink the wine or grape juice as a reminder of his body that was broken and his blood that was shed for us. It shows that God loved us to step into the mess that we had made, that how we had broken shalom. And God stepped into this mess to rescue and save us and bring us back to himself. That God is bringing good out of our messes ever since we first ran away from him. Because he is good. He is good, and we must treasure him above all things. And if you need prayer today, maybe you're in a place where you feel like you've just messed things up too much, or maybe you're going through a Job-like experience and you want someone to pray with you. Uh, maybe you have someone next to you that's like, just curse God and die, and you want someone to maybe you know, give you some grace in the midst of that. We would love to pray with you. Uh, you can send an email to connectorelement.org or prayer.element.org, and someone will get in touch with you. And we will talk with you and pray with you and maybe walk through some things with you if you, if you need it. As we are a people who must understand that God has given so much to us that we just become a generous people in how we live out our lives. We give to one another with our time and our energy. We also give of our finances. And that's one of the reasons that Element talks about that every week because our God has been so generous to us so we become a generous people. And you can give online or at Element, but we want to also be a generous church that gives to those around us. Because God has been so good to us. How can we not be good to those around us as well? And so we'd encourage you as you go through your journey guides this week to, to take some of those questions as you hit week two and you, and you start to give things up and you might struggle with it. I, this week, uh, on Tuesday, I gave up uh, all sweets on Tuesday just to get a precursor of what it was going to feel like, and I was not a happy camper on Tuesday. Uh, I was a little irritated because I know this is coming. This is going to be my life for six weeks, and my wife thought it was funny. Uh, I didn't. Anyway, but, but it's a way that all through those times I was thinking, okay, God, this is what I'm going to feel like, and I'm going to pray to you, and I'm going to listen to you, and I'm going to trust you. And this week, guys, as you start to give up those things and think about what God is doing in your life, spend some time being humble before him as he leads you in the places that he longs for you to go. And hopefully by the time that the six weeks have done and we celebrate on Easter, you'll have a much greater idea of what God has done in our lives and the celebration that we have in that day. God is good. God is good. And he should be treasured in our lives above everything else because he is the one who rescues and saves and draws us back to himself. Let's be a people who honor him in all that we hopefully eventually think uh, with our entire heart, with our entire lives, because he is good. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would take us as a people and have us understand that, that we can weep and we can wail, and yet you step in and walk through those things with us.
that you would move us to the place where we treasure you above all else, that we'd be willing to look at the things that we do treasure above you, even this day and time, and that as we see what that is, we would then lay that at your feet, and that you would become more precious to us than anything else. We ask that you would use the time over the remaining seven weeks of this journey to draw us closer to you, that our relationship with you would just grow deeper and stronger, and we would understand that you intend to bring your people joy. As you are glorified, we get to live in your goodness. So teach us to do that no matter what comes our way. Teach us to have you as the center of all that we do, and that in that understanding of your great love for us, we would then go live that out in front of those around us, that we would be your hands and feet to the world that is struggling and depressed and, quite frankly, has much of its joy robbed right now. And we could step into those places and explain and live out the great joy that we have in you because you are good. Teach us to live as your children in this world, fully glorifying you. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.